Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 82, being recorded on Thursday, April 6th, 2017. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and hey, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason, I think it's been about two weeks since we sat down to record a podcast, and you've been... I've been to Orlando, and you've been to Paris, New York, and Las Vegas. Any interesting uh, retail visits you can report on or trade shows? Sure, sure. So first, I'd like to highlight I got to see both Eiffel Towers and both Empire State Buildings. Nice. Yeah, so I feel like that I should get some sort of special badge on Swarm, if nothing else for that. You probably went by Venice in between there. I avoided Venice in this particular Las Vegas trip. I was over at the end of the strip at Mandalay Bay. Ah, okay. Got it. Uh, so that uh, that was this week, and that was for Oracle's Modern User Experience Conference. So I got a chance to to do a keynote for their commerce track there, and that was fun. I got to uh, see a lot of colleagues and talk to some customers and uh, see some of the new new direction that the Oracle commerce stack is going in, which is interesting. Um, I think the week before that, I was in Paris with some clients, and we did some store visits. The uh, maybe not the kind of stores that most of the e-commerce folks are interested in. We went to a bunch of uh, unique specialty stores in Paris, and so, uh, for example, El Royale, which is like the the world's most famous taxidermy store, and got to you know kind of check out some of the neat, uh, unique merchandising and u- unique merchant uh, dice that was available. We did a bunch of shopping in the Paris flea market. Uh, which is kind of a um, one of the longer running uh, uh, flea markets that are out there, and some cool stuff. So that was uh, fun, but maybe not super e-commerce related. Um, and then I did not see any new stores in New York, although I feel like there are a few under construction that I'm I'm uh, eager to check out when they open. Uh, awesome. But you, Scott, were in Orlando for something much more fun. Yeah, this was a spring break, and uh, regular listens, listeners will know I'm a big Star Wars fan, so I drug one of my children to a Star Wars celebration, which is the 40th year big anniversary that Lucasfilm put on down in Orlando. And uh, it's good to be with 70,000 other Star Wars fans, so there was there was a lot of Star Wars going on. I got my fill for the year. Nice. And what percentage of the time would you say you were in costume? I, I am not a cosplayer, but... Um, you know, a fair large percent of people are. So it, it's always fun to see all the different costumes and things. People are get pretty into it, as you can imagine. Oh, yeah. I'll bet it's annoying at the airport when everyone tries to go through security in those stormtrooper outfits. Yeah. The best is one year they had, they always do like a stormtrooper march and they had uh, someone was doing like a marathon and they crossed each other. And it was really funny watching the runners like run by a big line of stormtroopers and be like, what the hell's going on? It was like this really strange mix of things, you know? Nice. And the, the daughter that went with you, was she the winner or the loser in the family pool? Uh, she's young enough to believe she was the winner. So it was, it was good. I choose to believe she was the winner too. Um, 
But I think while we've been talking about all these trips, uh, hasn't Amazon been reporting their earnings today? Yeah, yeah, they just came out tonight, so this is hot off the presses. Um, so one pro tip for everyone so is uh, two pro tips. So every year, a must read for any retailer or person, even you know, remotely near our industry, is the Jeff Bezos shareholder letter. Uh, I don't want to spoil that at all, but uh, we'll put a link to it in the show notes to go look at that. Um, the one of my favorite things to read is if you go back to the '97 letter, right when Amazon went public, which they're celebrating 20 years of going public this year. Um, uh, and Bezos always includes this in every year's letter. So chances are you've probably, um, seen this before, but if you, if you haven't, that's another thing to go read. And it's pretty amazing because in that letter, he basically says, we believe these three things aren't going to change. Consumers are going to love low prices, uh, fast, free shipping and selection. And that's what we're going to focus on for the future. And, you know, it's pretty amazing that, that he totally nailed all that 20 years later, that that's a reading it. It's almost as if it could be written today. So, uh, definitely recommend that. And then in this year's shareholder letter, a little bit of a departure, some advice for entrepreneurs and things that, that I found really, um, just, just really awesome. So that's one pro tip, I guess, too. And then the third would be um, when Amazon does their press release, uh, they always include a Bezos quote. And I always look at that because that, I think, gives you a pretty clear signal what's really important to them. Also in there, they have highlights. and There's like 90 bullets these days because Amazon does something effectively every, you know, at least two press releases a day at this this pace. Uh, But that quote is always interesting. And uh, I'll just give you a little bit of it. Our India team is moving fast and delivering for customers and sellers. The team has increased prime selection by 75% since launching the program nine months ago, increased fulfillment capacity for sellers by 26% already just this year, announced 18 original TV series in India, and last week introduced a fire TV stick. Um, so that's a Jeff Bezos quote. And then he finishes by saying Amazon.in is the most visited and fastest growing marketplace in India. Um, it's still day one for e-commerce in India. And I assure you that we'll keep investing in technology and infrastructure. So that, that's so, you know, that it's really interesting to me that they chose to really focus on India in the press release, given all the exciting things they have going on. Um, so that was interesting. Yeah. And I uh, I feel like India is a hot e-commerce topic at the moment. Um I think in the last month, you know, traditionally there have been those kind of two indigenous players, Snapdeal and Flipkart. Uh, and then, uh, of course, Amazon has been trying to enter the market and, and eBay and others have, have had some presence. Um, but so I think in the last month, eBay, which had previously invested in Snapdeal, um, sold eBay.in to Flipkart and made a big investment in Flipkart. And I, I think uh, Google and maybe Alibaba had already invested in Flipkart. So it it's really starting to feel like all the Indian players that aren't Amazon are trying to consolidate in the Flipkart. And I think there's even rumors that Flipkart and Snapdeal might merge at some point. And the idea being to create a super competitor to try to uh, uh, fight Amazon for the Indian market. So that that really seems like the the epicenter of the e-commerce battleground in the world right now. Yeah. Um, so the Flipkart raise earlier in April was a 1.4 billion, which is not chump change. And then uh, Amazon's previously said they're willing to invest up to two billion dollars in India. And I think you know when I look at the fulfillment center build out, I imagine they're probably already there. So this feels like a 
continued commitment that this is a super important region to them that they want to want to win. And I think it, you know, it feels a little reactionary to that, that raise that just came out, just kind of given the timing and things that it's, it's hard to tell, but they're, they're really big on India, which was, is kind of an interesting thing from this earning release. Yep. And at a um, super high level, that's like second most populous country in the world next to China. They, uh, maybe a little further along in education of the citizens and, and, uh, better internet access than China. Um, and so it's a huge e-commerce market. And of course, Amazon, like basically this point has already lost China. So it's the, the largest market in the world that's, that's sort of open to competition. Yeah, I agree. And I think they, they've, uh, you know, there's a lot of lessons to be learned from China of not going in aggressive enough there and really kind of getting in front of the the local competitors. So they, they seem to be all in on India. So if we if we kind of peel the onion on the quarter, it it when you when you kind of measure it against Wall Street expectations, it's what you would call a bait and raise quarter. So they exceeded expectations on the top and bottom line, um, and then the forecast for Q2 came out. Um, slightly ahead of Wall Street consensus, so that's kind of where that raise and beat kind of or beat and raise language comes from. Uh, they had 35.7 billion in revenue for the quarter. After hours, the stock is up pretty substantially, so about five percent, which. Um, for Amazon, it is a very large cap stocks, and that moved it from effectively like nine hundred ten bucks to nine fifty four. Uh, and last time on the show, we talked about um, Jeff Bezos became number two richest person after a big move in the stock. Uh, if it gets to around a thousand dollars by my napkin math, that would push him over the top, which is which is interesting. Um, and just another interesting data point is uh, it looks like if, if these numbers hold. It looks like Amazon will have a market cap of about 450 billion, and Google will be at 610. Um, so there is this interesting talk about uh, Facebook's also in the conversation. Will one of these tech companies get to a, the, be the first trillion dollar market cap stock? So that's kind of where we are positionally. Google's a fair amount ahead, probably 50 percent ahead of Amazon at this point. Uh, Google also announced a, a pretty strong quarter. Um, but when you dig in. Uh, Every component of Amazon beat Wall Street expectations. So the retail business, which is the traditional retail business, which includes the marketplace, this new line item that just recently broke out called retail subs, and we'll dig into that. Amazon Web Services, which is cloud computing, uh, and then the other category now is effectively just the ad business. Uh, it did very well. Also, the only thing that was kind of a little bit, you know, not exceeding expectations was international growth. A lot of that was due to um, pretty substantial currency changes going on. And when you take those out and look at uh, constant currency, international itself did pretty well. So both the U.S. international grew 24%. And as a baseline, I always like to remind listeners, e-commerce is growing at 15%. So here you have the largest e-commerce player uh, growing, you know, easily, you know, you know uh, not quite double at this point, but you know considerably faster than the baseline. Thus, they're taking share uh, at a pretty tremendous clip. Uh, so it's nine percent higher, uh, and that equates when you multiply that by the thirty-five billion. You know that's like four billion they just kind of sucked out of the other pockets of anyone selling online just in one quarter uh, is one way to think about it. Uh, so let's see. Another one is uh, I used to like to look. Uh, it, it always frustrates people that Amazon doesn't give really clear category data, but they 
always gave media and EGM, and EGM is electronics and general merchandise. They actually stopped doing that this year. They provided a bunch of new disclosures um, annually, and then going forward, it looks like they've stopped with media and EGM. So that's a little bit of a bummer. But fortunately, I, I know enough to back into that. So um, I always like to do that because it actually uh, makes the numbers bigger. Um, and so if Amazon grew at 24%, uh, it looks like media grew at 7%. Media is books, music, video, video games, any digital books, those kinds of things. Uh, and EGM is, is uh, you know, obviously electronics, but any general merchandise, so sporting goods, CPG, all that stuff is lumped into that category, and it grew 26%, so getting relatively close to that 30% doubling of e-commerce. Uh, unit growth was 24%, uh, and one of the reasons the stock is up is Wall Street was expecting a buck 13 earnings per share, and it came in at a buck 48, so literally a 33% by my math. A um, couple other components I like to look at. Marketplaces is obviously a, a big thing I follow. Uh, the number that uh, Amazon reports is the percent of units that come from third party. Um, and that dipped a little. It had always been ticking up uh, for literally probably the last 20 quarters, I think. Uh, and then last Q4 or last quarter, it, it went from 50 to 49% units from third party which was interesting. We'd never seen it tick down. This quarter, it's ticked back up to 50%. So uh, that was good to see. I imagine going forward that we'll see it tick up one point. It kind of seems to be how it's going. So I, my bet is Q2, you'll see 51, and then we get up kind of to 53-ish, and then Q4, it'll tick down again because uh, just the first-party business really gets on fire during that time frame. One thing we've talked, uh, if you've listened to our Amazon deep dive, there's uh, you know this this kind of, Amazon's you know total sales revenue of 35.7 billion actually mask quite a bit of what's going on in there and uh, what you have to do is take out the Amazon web services and ads and you're left with 24 billion that gives you the first party business um, and then you would think well okay if 50% is units then it would be another 24 for third party uh, but actually it's a little bit more because the average order value of third party is substantially higher than first party um, and so when you when you kind of look at GMV versus units, uh, by my math, you get about $36 billion for third party. When you add those up, uh, Amazon's about twice as big as it seems. It's, I, I get it to be $60 billion for this quarter. Um, so you know that that's that's kind of closing in on a two hundred fifty billion dollar run rate for GMV across one P and three P, which is you know pretty interesting. If they um, you know if they have a solid Q four, you may start to. I don't think they could crest three hundred for the year, but you will. Q four would be the first hundred billion dollar quarter. Um, I think they could do that this year pretty easily, unless things really slow down. And but you would definitely uh, think of their annual GMV as bigger than than the, the 60 times four, right? Because the Q4 yeah. would be so much bigger. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So it, it, it'll get it, uh, uh, I think it's like another kind of, uh, you know, it would probably be 260 is kind of how it would pencil in if you just kind of assumed the same mix as last year. Which is a pretty big retailer. Uh, yes, that's a very large retailer. That's a global number. I always get asked that. Um, AWS, so the cloud computing, grew 47%. Uh, Wall Street was actually expecting a, a lot bigger slowdown. There's a lot of pricing battles going on here between Google, Microsoft, and Amazon. So that was good. And margins held up nicely, and that was one of the big contributors to that earnings beat. People were expecting uh, the cloud computing margins to be under pressure. 
Uh, probably the biggest surprise in the quarter is Amazon, um, in their annual report, started to break out the revenue from Prime. Um, now, there's some other stuff in there, so it's a little bit of a noisy number, but uh, essentially you can kind of make some assumptions and get close to an, an Amazon Prime number. Uh, so the big surprise, they call that retail subscriptions, and uh, the that revenue jumped 52% year over year. Now, what's interesting is uh, about a year ago is when they introduced the ability to buy Prime on a monthly basis, and then a little bit later, they broke out the video um, so you can just do a video subscription uh, so uh, concurrently with this report just yesterday consumer intelligence which is the surveying company and you know you and I are a little skeptical on surveys but I think this is directionally interesting they estimate that there's now 80 million prime users and that that number is up 2x from two years ago which would imply 2015 was 40 million uh, and a lot of Wall Street analysts when they pick the pick through this retail subscription number, they get to about the same numbers. And it's about 60% U.S., 40% international. So that would imply about 45 million homes in the U.S. have Prime, which is uh, pretty darn impressive. Um, the other thing that this report highlighted was that the sales that they – Amazon gets from a non-prime user is about $700 a year and prime users spend about twice that at 14 or 1300 a year. Um, also interestingly, this survey picked up that now about 25% of users uh, use that new monthly program, which is 1099. And I think most of those will be new because if you were in the annual, you probably wouldn't downgrade to the monthly. You, most folks will auto renew. So I think prime, I think the punchline here is Prime has surged by coming out with this monthly program, um, generating at least half of that 55% growth, I would imagine, has come from new folks that are, are joining the program. And what gets Wall Street excited is there was some concern that if you look at the way the Census Bureau breaks up household incomes, you have this top tier that's over 120K, and everyone felt like that was at like 80 or 90% saturation. So I think what gets people excited is this 1099 monthly plan seems to be pulling people down kind of more towards that Walmart consumer, which I think is more of a 60, 70K kind of household income. So, so that, that was pretty interesting. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Um, the, I think there was another report earlier in the month that was kind of interesting that was looking at the habits of prime members. And I, I think there had been this assumption uh, that prime members were super loyal and that once you got locked into that $99 that you wanted to get as much value from it as you could. So you aggregated all your shopping on, on Amazon. And what this study showed was that, that no, that prime customers are, are more voracious e-commerce shoppers overall. And that while they have a much bigger spend on, on Amazon than non-prime members, uh, they still use uh, multiple other retailers and spend more money overall. Um, and so I don't know if that's how accurate that is. Again, like, you know, some of these surveys are not very big numbers of consumers that they're making big inferences from. Um, but if that's true, uh, that's pretty interesting because I feel like a lot of people have felt like the Prime is a, a, a true lock-in program. Yeah, I didn't see that. I don't know the data source on that one. You'll just have to take my word for it or read the show notes. Ah, I trust you, Jason. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the So, Scott, like one of the things, whenever we talk about Amazon, particularly to a retailer, they like you see their eyes roll in the back of their head and they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, uh, Amazon doesn't have to be profitable, so it's not fair for us to compete with them because we do. Yeah. Um, 
you and I both work hard to dispel this one. So, so just kind of put it to bed. Uh, that's totally false. So Amazon's been profitable as an entity for the last eight quarters. So that's two years. Uh, and that uses EBITDA, which for Amazon is a pretty conservative number. It takes the most kind of conservative accounting treatment that you look at. And actually, Amazon, if, if you start to read these Bezos shareholder letters, and we don't have time to go into it, but they, they think that's a bad measure. And I, I think they have a lot of reasons why that's right. And what they really look at is free cash flow generated by the business. So another thing they, they break apart is, and this is kind of unique, it's their own measure, um, it's called CSOI, and it's uh, the operating income for a business unit, essentially. So um, so it's called consolidated segment operating income. And so it's essentially where they say, look, the retail business did this, and uh, the non-retail business did that. So it's a way for them to kind of come out with a little, you know, give you some idea of what component is generating what profit. So, um, you know, a lot of folks say, well, uh, okay, yeah, sure, they're profitable, but it must be Amazon Web Services that's doing it all. A- AWS is quite profitable, um, but the North America retail business is profitable too, and, and it generated $1.84 billion in cash this quarter, just to kind of put a number on it. Now, uh, the one thing you can't peel apart from there is the marketplace. So you could argue, well, the marketplace is generating all that profit. I would probably agree with you, actually, um, but I don't think it's – you can't unbundle the marketplace from retail at this point and just say, well, what's the one P business making? Um, but you know, at the, at the granularity we get, it, it's profit. The retail part of Amazon's business is profitable. Cloud computing is profitable. And uh, when you look at free cash flow uh, on a trailing 12 month basis, which is what they like to look at, uh, they generated $10 billion in free cash flow. So, so I, I think, you know, the, these numbers are at a scale that, uh, it's really hard to refute that Amazon's profitable and, and doing quite well on the bottom line. Yeah, which is crazy. Uh, one one of the things I saw in the earnings that is that their their shipping costs went up by a billion dollars. So they spent four point seven billion just in shipping. And to think that like they're they're profitable and potentially getting more profitable with that kind of investment is amazing. Yeah, and. Um, uh, if you read the earnings, there's a there's a gross and a net number, and what what that number you saw is like just the cost. It doesn't have the offsetting um, revenue from Prime that goes against it, and and fees from sellers. Uh, it actually knocks it down by about half. Is is the actual true net cost? Interesting. Okay. Um, the other thing I heard a lot of uh, sort of squawking about is uh, how well AWS is doing versus its competitors. So obviously. Uh, it is the 800 pound gorilla in cloud and certainly Oracle and Google and, and, uh, Microsoft have, have, uh, and, and IBM have really sort of targeted it. They're much smaller. Um, but at the moment they're growing faster than AWS is because they're so much smaller. And I, I know earlier in the month, uh, uh, the Oracle team was like kind of taking some shots at AWS and talking about how much it was, it was its growth was slowing down um, and uh, why, you know, they thought that that they had a, a better, cheaper solution than Amazon. And then uh, I noticed uh, that Amazon sort of took the bait and refuted a lot of that in the uh, this week. And I, I think I saw the, the president of AWS coming out with some quotes talking about how the, the old Oracle model of locking you into mediocre services doesn't work anymore. <laughs> and that, you know, he, he, it was, it was kind <laughs> of a, a pretty funny backhanded, uh, quote talking about how, you know, un, unhappy a lot of Oracle 
customers probably were that they were locked into this database for all this sort of time. Um, so, so I always love a good trash talk, but it is interesting. It does feel like not only is Amazon winning at AWS, but they're starting to add more enterprise type software and kind of higher, higher level software to the stack that feels like it's, it's more right in Oracle's kitchen. So like, you know, they have a very credible database offering in AWS that could help you avoid, you know, having to pay Oracle for a database, for example. Yeah, and one of the things that makes it a little apples and oranges is I know Microsoft, you know, they've switched everyone in Office over to that Office 365, and they count that as cloud revenue. So it's kind of a little, little apples and oranges where Amazon's cloud is really the the pieces of you know the Lego blocks of cloud, and other people are putting applications in the bucket. So, but it, either way, you slice it, Amazon's ahead. So, uh, just put a number on it. So this quarter, the revenue for cloud computing came in at three point six billion. Um, so that gives that about a sixteen billion dollar run rate. So that's a that's a in a world of software that is a big business. Um, and as we mentioned, it's growing you know north of forty percent, which is not too shabby, and it has you know amazing margins, which is nice. Yeah, it's a it's a uh, certainly uh, impressive to have these two huge huge uh, growth engines in in one company. Uh, it makes you wonder what which which one of those uh, the investors are investing in. Yeah, and a lot of people ask me if I think they'll split it out, and and I really don't because AWS is the operating system Amazon runs on, and a lot of the cool new features they're coming out with have been been you know dog fooded or baked internally through for for Amazon's retail business and they wouldn't have come up with those ideas if there were two separate companies so I actually am contrarian on that I don't think they'll ever split them apart I think they love having them together because there's definitely this synergy you would not get having them separate the um the other big Amazon news I've been dying to ask you about is the the Echo Look um so uh why don't you describe that for folks that may have missed the announcement and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so they announced a new piece of hardware today, uh, which is called the Echo Look, and it's it's sort of a next generation Echo. It's it's two hundred dollars. It has all the features of a uh, the traditional Echo, uh, but it also has a camera in it. Um, and so the the use case that they're touting is that you would put this in your closet or in your bedroom or wherever you get dressed. Um, and in addition, to all the traditional um, Echo features, you can instruct it to take a picture or a video of you. And so uh, what this would let you do is, like, get dressed in the morning, try on an outfit, uh, have Echo take a picture of you, and then you could leverage this other service that Amazon launched about a month ago that I think we briefly talked about on the show called Style Check, um, which is where uh, you upload a picture to Amazon and a human stylist that works for Amazon looks at that picture and gives you advice about, like, if you send pictures of two outfits They'll tell you which outfit they think looks better. Or they'll give you fashion advice, like human curated fashion advice. And so, you know, now it seems like they're making it much easier to use this style check by by putting this camera in your in your closet or in your bedroom. Um, and I I personally think this is a super interesting Trojan horse. Um, so the more information you have about consumers' fashion habits and what they actually use versus buy, um, the better recommendations you can make for clothes and the better clothes you can actually design for those customers. Um, you know, fashion is such a trend-based business and so many uh, apparel companies have lived or died by missing trends. 
if you're a fashion company, which Amazon aspires to be, and you have a camera in the closet of potentially millions of consumers, you're guaranteed to be the the most uh, on trend. You're guaranteed to spot the changes in behaviors. And more exciting, you're you're not getting the stated behaviors. You're not getting these like like um, sort of artificial new trends that that the designers make when they when they go to Fashion Week every year. Um, you're you're seeing the actual clothes that consumers wear, and that's a big deal because a lot of consumers buy clothes, put them in their closet, and never wear them. So knowing what the what their real preferences are uh, potentially gives you a huge leg up in selling and designing fashion. And frankly, it also potentially has some real utility for consumers to help steer them towards the gaps in their wardrobe or the things that they gravitate to. And, you know, maybe I buy a lot of colorful shirts, but I never wear them. And, and so, you know, Amazon could potentially uh, remind me of the shirts that I'm more likely to really wear, for example. So uh, it's, it's potentially very interesting and it potentially is a super valuable new data source for Amazon if they get a lot of people to use this. Yeah. The reaction to it is really fascinating because every dude I know doesn't get it at all. They're like, I thought it was an April Fool joke. This is crazy. Why would anyone use this? Every woman I know, and this is like, you know, uh, anecdotal. So like five or 10 women I chatted with about it, they were like, hmm, that's pretty, how would that work? What kind of recommendations would they make? You know, uh, oh, that's handy. I don't have a full length mirror. And they liked the fact you could do a video of you twirling around and see the outfit, kind of how it, you know, a 360 view of the outfit. Um, it kind of reminds me when I watched the little promotional video, it reminds me of the magic mirrors you talk a lot about, you know, where, you know, there are more touch screens and things, but the general idea of the magic mirror is to, you know, you know, see how an outfit looks and then say, Oh, I'd rather have another top and then, you know, interactively buy that. Um, this is actually even better in some ways because you get the stylus component and the machine learning. Yeah, absolutely. And the magic mirror, like, like, frankly, that's a really expensive technology. And you put it in this dressing room in a, in a fashion, in a apparel store. And it's, it's a real challenge because, you know, of a hundred people that walk in that store, only 25 of them are going to walk in the dressing room and only five of those are going to actually use the magic mirror. So you bought this really expensive piece of capital equipment that only touches a small percentage of the consumers in your store. Whereas this, Amazon solution is 200 bucks and it potentially touches that customer 365 times a year. Um, so like, I, I think it's, it's a similar use case, but dramatically more valuable than the in-store uh, stuff that you see people experimenting with. Um, the, it, it's funny you mentioned the, the gender divide, like, you know, certainly when you see this, you think about things like stitch fix, which have largely focused on women and, and, you know, they, they've always touted that they have this advantage from seeing all these women's preferences and their reaction to the, the outfits that the stylists curate and that they use that data to, to design their new clothes. Well, like this is sort of that model on steroids. So, you know, you, you could have Amazon collecting much more data, uh, with a much beta, bigger data science team, uh, leveraging that data. So that's super interesting. Uh, I, on the gender divide, it was funny. I, I think I had a debate on Twitter with our, our mutual friend, David uh, Spitz, and uh, he, he was taking the under on this. He, he's not super excited, um, but you heard it here first. I've already, you know, put in my request to be, uh, uh, to, to be able to buy one. And, uh, you know, if I do buy one, we'll see if a year from now, if, if I'm more fashionable than David, because right now I feel like he has a pretty commanding lead over me. 
<laughs> it's kind of a race to the bottom there. I don't know. Yeah, it, the, uh, it's important to <laughs> to pick a, a reasonable goalpost. Yeah, the, when uh, when I first saw just the device and before I saw the video, I thought, wow, that could be a really you know. I thought it would be more of like a drop cam competitor or they call it the nest camera now uh, because you know, the nest camera is nice and I use one uh, and, but then the thing it's like constantly you alerting, you know, I, I saw motion and you look and like a tree wiggled and it's totally useless. So the image recognition and the machine learning on it's not very good. So I, when I saw it, I thought, okay, a camera with a voice interface and, you know, then, you know, the motion capture could be really amazing. So I wonder if, if they'll actually have multiple uses for the thing because having it as kind of a monitoring camera seems also like a natural to me. Yeah, and um, another use case we've heard a lot of talk and chatter about is a uh, a speakerphone or a video conferencing phone. So you know this this hardware you know could certainly do either of those purposes. So you you could imagine uh, you get you know uh, that that same hardware could be used for a bunch of different uses use cases, and they could just add new skills and add new features um, to the hardware all the time as as they already do on the Echo. Uh, one thing that was interesting to me about the hardware. And they say it has the same feature set as the Echo. Um, you know, our listeners will, will remember there's at least there's there's more than two, but there are two sort of AC powered Echoes. There's the Echo and the Echo Dot. And the big difference between those two is the the high fidelity speaker in the Echo. Um, and I think the Echo was 180 bucks when it first launched. Is that am I am I remembering right? Um, it's still 180. I think it was 199. Gotcha. It so it launched at 200. Yeah. It's down to 180. Uh, so this device, if it has the same audio in it that the Echo has in it, then they've squeezed a camera in there at basically the same price. Um, so I'll be curious if they if they did any cost reductions to the audio to help afford the camera or or how that all, that all worked out uh, is of interest. Yeah, did you see? Uh, since we're on this topic, they did a over-the-air update for taps, and now you don't have to press the button for it to work. So they must have somehow solved the battery problem that originally, you know, originally the use case was you would hold down this button, and you had to do that because it was battery-operated, and because listening chewed a lot of battery. That that's kind of why they had to did it. Uh, so this, um, I think, just in the last week or so they rolled out an update to that to you know basically enhance that device so that that's no longer necessary i I thought that was pretty interesting i didn't see a lot of news about that no i didn't hear a lot about it and what what was fascinating to me is there's um uh that has played out in the phone world right and and so there there are um it it does take a lot of battery to listen all the time and so for example the, the apple iphone uh you can activate siri without pushing a button but only when you're plugged into ac um, so like when you're in your dock at night, for example, uh, there are some Android phones that listen all the time and take up very little battery. But the way they do that is they actually have a dedicated chip that's a, in, a, a single purpose chip that's designed to be very low power and listen for that activation word. And so you'd go like, oh, it makes perfect sense that they could build a new uh, um, dot that that uh, can could listen all the time because it had a new chip in it. But the fact that they were able to add that feature just in software is pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I have no idea how they did it. Magic. Exactly. Uh, and then the other thing, and they, they, you know, haven't talked about how long they've been working on this or any of those things, but, uh, the, the one thing that dawned on me 
almost every apparel manufacturer I've ever worked with, we've talked about closet closet analytics and we've talked about the benefits of putting a camera in the closet and understanding more about how consumers are are using the product and you've talked to them about like having those devices for focus groups and test markets and panels and things or making it a a, a widely available consumer product and I've probably been talking about that idea with apparel manufacturers for three or four years um, and it's it's frankly probably on a lot of apparel manufacturers roadmaps uh, but I'm guessing that the Amazon decided this was a good idea in a much shorter cycle. And while everyone else just talked about it and kind of put it on the back burner, um, these guys very quickly just did it and they're putting it out in the market and, you know, maybe it'll be successful and it'll be a big story we're talking about in a year. Maybe it won't be, it'll be the next fire phone and, and David will be right. And they'll, they'll quickly learn from it and pivot before they've wasted too much money. Uh, spoiler alert. That's kind of the, the theme of Jeff Bezos shareholder letter. Um, but I, I, I do think the fact that they just push something out like this uh, when so many other people have thought about it and talked about it and not taking action is, you know, one of the unique defining characteristics of Amazon to me. Another use case I wanted to ask you about because I don't know a lot about it is fitment because it seems like if you've got a camera there, you should be able to do some body measurements and say to someone, you know, so, so imagine this thing has been watching you try on 10 outfits and then now you say, hey, order me a small T-shirt and it says, hey, you know, just so you're aware, I checked the measurements and I don't think this is going to fit. You know, do you think that they could get smart enough to do measurements? Absolutely. And to your point, like the apparel returns are very high and returns are super expensive. Returns are super expensive even for Amazon. So anything you can do to reduce returns by getting better fitment is is hugely valuable. Um, there are a couple of vendors out there that try to do fitment with a 2D camera. Um, and, you know, they they can do it, but I, I suspect that it's uh, pretty imperfect. Um, there's really interesting fitment you can do with the 3D cameras. And from and we don't know yet what's really in this this uh, new Echo device, um, but it sounds like it's halfway between a 2D and 3D camera. So what it sounds like is it only has a single lens, single camera, but then it has a separate uh, infrared rangefinder so that it can measure the distance you are from the camera, um, and that that allows it to get more accurate sizing information about you. Um, so potentially, it, it it absolutely could have a use case in fitment. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see what direction they take this thing. Yeah, uh, again, uh, like you know, the and uh, the Echo is a super interesting product. You know, I don't think a bunch of people are using it as a high volume e commerce ordering machine. And so, you know, if anything, you'd almost look at that and say, "Hey, is are, are these kind of consumer electronics products going to be a third? a third big business for Amazon in the long run. Um, but when they start moving those, those things from your kitchen to your closet, they, they may have found some real use cases where, where this kind of artificial intelligence can really, you know, potentially drive actual e-commerce revenue for Amazon. The, you know, I think there are a couple of other little news things uh, in the Amazon world. Um, I was actually just at NAB last uh, or this week in Las Vegas, and Amazon uh, had a huge booth at NAB. And uh, NAB is the National Association of Broadcasters, so big video production show, all the news guys. And it reminded me that Amazon had bought this video processing company called Elemental in Portland, Oregon. Um, and so this huge booth at NAB is a 
uh, Elemental AWS, and they essentially have have put this this uh, Elemental service on AWS, and they sell it to broadcasters to to store and process all their video. Um, and so, to me, that was just another interesting example of kind of you know Amazon uh, AWS moving from pure infrastructure to applications or services. Um, they also released the the Lex APIs this month, which are uh, like all the underlying uh, speech and uh, natural language processing libraries from the Echo or from Alexa. You can now use in, in Amazon in your own applications. And that um, directly has them competing with like uh, IBM Blue Mix with the Watson APIs and um, some new APIs that, that Google has as well. So that was super fascinating. Uh, I think we saw this new subscription uh, service from Amazon uh, that uh, probably confused most of us. Subscribe with Amazon. It's. Uh, did you read about that at all? Yeah, I was. I thought it was going to be. Um, so Amazon has subscribe and save, where for mostly consumables you can buy a one uh, a onesie or an each, or you could subscribe and get it coming on a regular basis. Uh, third parties have wanted to be involved in that for a long time. So um, you know, say I'm a I don't know. I make dog biscuits. Uh, you, you may want a third party way of doing that and that's not available. So I thought that's what it would be, but it ended up being really more of an app store kind of thing. So the ability to manage subscriptions to apps. So kind of like Dropbox or uh, I don't know, Evernote, things of that nature. So uh, it was a little underwhelming. It's, it's all digital subscriptions, not physical ones that they're opening up. I actually think that's, that's potentially a competitor to PayPal um, and part of, the pay with Amazon ecosystem because it turns out one of the the unsung use cases of PayPal is that in our, our new digital lives we all have these these digital subscriptions and recurring costs and you know there's a fair amount of of what we call breakage in those subscriptions where you subscribe to something forget you subscribe to it um, and they just keep charging your credit card um, and when consumers do discover that, that's super annoying and they, you know, they, they want to save money and be able to manage what they're paying for. So what a lot of people do is they use PayPal for all those, those recurring costs so they can go to one dashboard in PayPal and see all the services that they've permissioned for, for recurring charges, which is something PayPal lets you do, credit cards don't let you do. And then from PayPal, you can turn on or off those various subscriptions. And so the, uh, this, this new service from Amazon feels like a, a direct competitor with, with that PayPal service. It feels like it's sort of a centralized portal for managing all your recurring digital subscriptions. I hadn't thought of it that way. Well, hey, that's why you have me, man. Uh, yeah. I think there was also a new Amazon patent, which is pretty interesting, and particularly in light of the the uh, Echo style we were talking about earlier, uh, or the Echo look we were talking about earlier, rather. Uh, they have a new patent on uh, for on-demand apparel manufacturing. And, you know, that's a, a technology that the apparel manufacturers are all super interested in. Uh, Adidas has some pop-up stores where they'll make you a sweater in the store. Um, there's a, a, a store in Boston called Supply Depot that, that make the, like, high-performance wool blazers on demand in the store with these sort of uh, on-demand weaving machines. Um, and now, you know, it looks like Amazon is investing some IP in uh, uh, being a leader in that space as well. So it just seems like 
another vector where Amazon is very clearly investing in fashion, both with the private labels and the the Echo Look and the 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 photo studios that they've been building, and and you know now we're starting to see some interesting patents in the space as well. The I saw kind of along this theme, I saw that uh, there's rumors that they're going to be coming out with a an office competitor, so kind of a hosted, um, you know, suite kind of a thing. I, I don't have any idea if that's real or not, but uh, several folks had emailed me about that, thinking that was pretty interesting and it would sit on top of AWS. Uh, so that's interesting, and that that could, you know, maybe that could slow down that Microsoft cloud growth. And you know, Google's invested really heavily in their their G suites, so maybe it's a maybe they're going to shoot a shot at the bow there. Uh, and then the last little piece of Amazon news um, that I thought was interesting is. Uh, Channel Advisors had an office in Australia for a really long time, very active e-commerce market there. Um, there's really no competitor to eBay, so eBay mops up in, in Australia. They do really well there. Um, and uh, there's been rumors that Amazon's going to be there for three years, uh, and it looks like it's official. There was a, you know, a newspaper interview with an Amazon head of Australia, and he said, yeah, we're going to be com- coming out in the summer. So uh, that's exciting for the people down under that that are you know looking to get involved in the Amazon ecosystem. I imagine there'll be a third party offering and that kind of thing. So looks like the competitive um, you know wave is going to hit there pretty hard. Yeah, I, I feel like once that happens, uh, that may be a great opportunity for the for a Channel Advisor to host a Jason and Scott show in Australia. Yeah, you say that. I've been there, and that flight is really, really, really long. So I'm not. I know you love to fly, but that one may break you. I don't know. It's like a 24 hour flight. It's it's brutal. That, those flights are the only reason I ever get to the bottom of my inbox. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely an inbox zero flight. And then you've watched every movie you haven't seen in the last three years, and then you you've walked up and down the aisle 80 times, and you you look and you're still got another 10 hours. Yeah, it usually causes strife with my wife as well because I'll inevitably uh, be forced to watch some movies that that uh, we had intended to watch together. Mm, yeah, it's tough. Uh, uh, so uh, some other exciting news in e-commerce outside of the Amazon ecosystem. Uh, there was an enormous acquisition this month, and I, I think it, uh, in fact, is the largest acquisition ever in the e-commerce space. Yeah, kind of in the theme of Jet Walmart, uh, you know, where where incumbents are saying, "Hey, we got to acquire something that's really going to make a dramatic change uh, in the pet category." PetSmart acquired Chewy.com. Uh, that's not Chewbacca; it's more C H E W Y for three point three five billion dollars, making it the largest e-commerce acquisition to date. Um, Another thing that's interesting there is a lot of these uh, e-commerce acquisitions have gone for kind of one times revenue. Uh, so the rumors are that Chewy was closing in on a billion dollar run rate. So this would put it, you know, well over three X on revenue. So this is a really good outcome for the industry to have, uh, you know, a, a really quality exit, a quality buyer, and hopefully the integration will work. And, and this could, I, I'm not familiar with the, you know, what's going on with the pet guys as far as their e-commerce things, but if it's following the general trends, usually some of these omni-channel guys have been struggling. So hopefully this will, you know, help uh, accelerate their e-commerce efforts as well. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked on the show before about this, this uh, theoretical tipping point in every category where when you get to about, 20% of category sales being on e-commerce, uh, that it becomes hugely disruptive to the, the legacy businesses. And, and I, 
I haven't seen recent data on uh, the pet category, uh, but I have a suspicion uh, that that might be one of those categories that that you know has recently crossed over that twenty percent threshold, and so that you know that may have made it more of an imperative for one of the big brick and mortar players to to invest in a, a solid e commerce offering. You know, if in fact uh, that that category is really getting disrupted by e commerce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about? Um so we talked a lot about Walmart on the last show. They had gone on a, a kind of a bit of an acquisition spree. Any other Walmart news you want to want to you've noticed? Yeah. So I think the acquisitions have continued or at least potentially are continuing. Uh, they they purchased a URL. They purchased shoes dot com. Um, and I, I don't as I sit here, I don't remember what the, the price was. I think it was a couple million bucks. Was it three million bucks? Something like that. I don't know. I didn't see that. One. Uh, I will put it in the show notes. I apologize for for not having it on the top of my head. But that was a pure URL that they purchased, uh, and you know, one of the the first acquisitions they made in Mark Lurie's era was this shoe company, Shoebuy. And so they they bought Shoes dot com and they redirected all the traffic to Shoebuy. Um, so you know that that was the 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 only true acquisition we've seen. Uh, but then uh, we did read on Recode. Uh, a rumor that uh, they are looking at Bonobos as well. And so that that would be a, a super interesting acquisition if that proves to be true. Yeah, that would be a great brand to kind of have an exclusive on. And so a lot of kind of interesting things there. Um, though it may have the side benefit of hosing Nordstrom. Doesn't Nordstrom carry Bonobos? They do. Uh, I think it could be one of those good news, bad news things for Nordstrom. I believe Nordstrom uh, is a significant investor in Bonobos. So if the valuation was good... Uh, you know, Nordstrom could make some cash off that acquisition uh, on the one hand and potentially lose the product line on the other hand, but not necessarily, right? Like, uh, I don't know what Walmart would do if they bought Bonobos, if they would let Nordstrom keep keep selling it or not. Yeah, yeah, it'd be interesting to watch how that plays out. Yeah. Uh, and so speaking of Walmart, there were a couple other interesting things going on at Walmart. Uh, Walmart launched this new innovation incubator that they call Store 8. Um, which was kind of the the original test store for Walmart that Sam Walton ran um, was store number eight. And so uh, in in San Bruno, they've opened this new lab and they've called it store eight. And the big news was that they got uh, Jenny Fleiss, who is the founder of Rent the Runway, uh, to be the the first uh, new startup in the incubator. And it sounds like she's developing some new concept around personalized shopping um, and, and doing it for Walmart. Hmm. Cool. Have they announced what it is or it's a super secret? Only, uh, the vague kind of, uh, something focused on personalized shopping. And they also haven't announced a ton of detail about exactly how the incubator will work. So is, is it an incubator that Walmart is investing in and they own a piece of the startups and the startups aren't, uh, exclusive to Walmart. So, you know, is Walmart just investing in this and, and, Jenny's launching a company that might not sell through Walmart, or is it building technology exclusively for Walmart's use? You know, I, I don't think we got we have that level of detail, uh, but I will say it's uh, there's kind of an interesting divergence at the moment. You see Walmart investing in new innovation capabilities and doing things like like uh, this store, and you know, frankly, getting a big name entrepreneur like Jenny involved um, is all pretty credible. And at the same time. 
you know, we're reading about a lot of other retailers and most notably Target, like walking away from a lot of their innovation investments. And, you know, they they had these concept stores that they canceled. They had this project Goldfish that we were super excited to figure out what that was. And they, you know, they canceled that and let the 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 innovation fellow that that, that was involved in that project leave. And then I think this week we read that uh, Casey Carl, uh, who was their chief innovation officer, is leaving. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, you have, have some retailers that are struggling and look like they're really curtailing their investments in innovation. And on the other hand, uh, it seems like Walmart's really doubled down. Yeah. One of the uh, other interesting Walmart stories was, uh, and this had Mark Laurie written all over it, that if you, for select items, if you ordered them online and had them delivered to the store for pickup, you'd actually save, you know, somewhere between five and $20. So I think that makes a ton of sense. It's, it's cheaper for them. They save on the shipping cost, so they should pass that on to the consumer. And that was one of the hallmarks of the, the jet system. So that'll be interesting. The thing that's a little weird about it is if the, if the inventory you're buying online is also in the store, then you don't get a disc. If it's already in the store, then you don't get a discount. So that, that may just feel weird as a consumer to kind of be like, well, why are you discounting the stuff that's not in the store? You know, it just, I have to kind of see how it plays out. We'll, we'll see how that goes. Yeah. I, I am in very mixed emotions about that offering, um, which I'll get to in a minute. Uh, but I, I was also just sort of interested in the industry reaction to this announcement. So it, it was sort of very binary. I saw a bunch of articles from people that are like, man, this is super smart and Walmart's leveraging, you know, their, their advantages to try to compete with Amazon and, and Mark glory is super smart and this is a good aggressive move. And then I saw a bunch of other articles that are like, um, you know, this, this is rearranging, uh, chairs on the deck of the Titanic. And, you know, this is a, a, a silly thing that isn't going to move the needle. Um, and you know, why, why are they doing things like this when they need to reinvent a customer experience to compete with Amazon? Did you, uh, do you like? Do you come down on one side of that, or the other, Scott? I I kind of come back to the user experience and just kind of you know how do you explain to people that you're going to save money on this thing because it's not in the store, but this one that's in the store you're not going to save money on. I'm I'm really curious to see how they they figure that out. Yeah, and I, from a consumer perspective, it's not intuitive. That's exactly my problem, right? Like you're balancing two things. Uh, customers want to save money for sure, and you want to. Um, if there are efficiencies in encouraging the customer to one behavior versus another, you, you certainly want to encourage them to the more efficient behavior and pass those savings on to that customer, right? Like, so I, I certainly agree with that sentiment, you know, and I think that's the, the underlying principle behind Jet, and I, I agreed with the sentiment on Jet as well. But the, the user experience that gets manifested as a result of this is, complicated. And I, I think another big trend in adoption is consumers are looking for simpler, lower friction interfaces. And, you know, a bunch of the most successful uh, products on the market right now are out, are, are successful largely just because they were a better, simpler interface for a service that, that consumers were already used to. So like, I would argue that, you know, Uber's primary value prop over the taxi was, it's a better user experience for the same, same sort of service and lower friction. And to your point, when, you know, every product you put in your shopping cart has a different value prop and a different, you know, preferred delivery mechanism based on the cost to Walmart and whether or not it happens to be on the shelf and which which uh, fulfillment center it happens to be in and all those sorts of things, 
Like, I think exposing all that complication to the shopper is potentially problematic. And I would argue it was problematic on Jet as well. And so, you know, the magic question is, is there a way to to greatly simplify that, not expose all that complication and supply chain ugliness to the shopper, uh, but but still like encourage the shopper to do what's in their own best interest and save money? And so I guess time time will tell on on that one. Uh, I I think that they have the exact right sentiment, but I think there's a you know potential to improve the user experience to do it. Cool. We will keep listeners tuned in on what we see there. Good deal. And Scott, with that, um, it has happened again. We've we've uh, uh, wasted a perfectly good hour of our listeners' time. So I want to uh, thank everyone for tuning in. It's been great to catch up with you after a couple of weeks. And I'll remind everyone uh, to uh, uh, subscribe and write us a review on iTunes. Yep. Thanks, everyone, for listening. That's all the news we have this week. Until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.